0: Uh, today we start a series. It's a three-week series on uh, River Stones. Uh, we changed our name. We, when we started our church, we had a different name uh, back in 1999. We changed the name of the church uh, a few years in uh, to Riverstone. And the story behind the name changes we're going to talk about today uh, is the story of Joshua and uh, the River Stones and what God told him to do as they crossed the Jordan. Uh, from the wilderness into the promised land. So we're going to take a look at that. Uh, today, we're, we have 12 river stones that, that we have taken that we believe are things that God has called us to go after. And uh, those are, are dear to our heart, things that we believe in and believe that God has called us to to go after. Um, there are others. There are other stones. Uh, Joshua 3 tells the story of Israel crossing Israel, uh, the Jordan. Uh, they've, they've made mistakes. You know, if you know the story, you've read the story after the exodus and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years and they certainly make uh, their share of mistakes in the wilderness. But they also, uh, they also learn some things. They learn some valuable lessons uh, in the desert. They learn the importance of hearing from the Lord and, and moving in faith rather than fear. Uh, they learn the necessity of heeding the Lord's call to be strong and to be courageous and, and to be willing actually to risk. Uh, they learn the value of pressing through obstacles in reaching in faith for the deeper things of God rather than just living uh, on a superfer- uh, superficial level. Uh, and they learn the need to actually lodge in the river and to soak uh, in the things that God is doing in order to receive uh, from him. Now, in chapter 3 of Joshua, the Lord tells Joshua to instruct the priests, uh, to choose a priest from each tribe, and he instructs the priest, uh, when you reach the river, tell the priest to go and stand in it, to go and stand in the river. And when they do this, this incredible thing happens. When they put their feet in the river. Uh, Chapter three tells us that the flow of the river stops, and the river actually stands up. And so this part of the river continues to flow, this part stops, and so there's this dry place that's left. And if you've ever walked in a riverbank you You realize that it's not the miracle is not just that the river stood up, there's also the, a miracle that the ground was dry, and it says that they cross on dry land. so this river stands up, stops flowing, and the people cross on dry ground and then after they all get on the other side, God gives some instructions. So we're going to take a look at. Uh, Joshua chapter 4, we'll read verses 1 through 9, and then uh, verses uh, 19 through 24. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men that he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites. To serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Verse 8. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of, Israel, of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. And then verse 19, on the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them. Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you always fear the Lord your God. Now let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you uh, to speak today. Uh, There's there's no one here today who needs to hear from me, but all of us need to hear from you. And so we ask that your words would come forth, that you would speak, uh, that you would anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the people cross. Uh, This incredible thing happens. The Lord stops the river. Uh, The river stands up. The people cross, and Joshua sends the 12 back in to get river stones. And uh, why does he do that? Well, it tells tells us that he did this as a reminder so that when generations to come would look at this, this river stones, this this altar that has been built by Joshua. And they ask, what what do these stones mean? That they will be able to tell from generation to generation to generation about what God did, about the power of God that was demonstrated and poured out on their behalf. So in essence, he's saying it's not for us. The stones are not for you. The stones are for the generations that follow And we would do well to to embrace that and to remember that, that that actually what God is doing in us and what God is doing in our generation is not just for us, but it's for us to invest. Our call is to invest in the coming generation. Verse 24 says clearly that the nations of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. From generation to generation to generation, the things of God are passed along. In fact, we've talked a lot here about the, the economy of the kingdom being increased. And that God wants every generation to increase. We don't want to be half of what the previous generation was. We want to be twice what the previous generation was. Because with every generation, God wants his things to increase so that they will go further and do more. And that's what we desire. That's what we want. Listen to me. We don't want to be the generation that failed to tell their children the truth of God. We don't want to be that generation. We don't want to be the generation that failed to point to the stones and say, This is who our God is. This is how powerful he is. These are the things that he did in my life. These are the things and more that he wants to do in your life. So what are are we going to take out of the river? What are we going to take out of the river? What will be the stones that we give to our children as a reminder of the power of God? And will the things that we give them cause the nations of the world to fear the Lord forever? We're going to talk about, over the course of the next three weeks, 12 stones uh, that we have identified, that we believe God has called us to. I I don't want you to think for one minute that we believe there are only 12 stones worth sharing. There are so many things uh, that God has done, and there are so many things that God calls us to so much. In fact, uh, as I prepared uh, this week for this message, I realized that there were assumptions that we made 20 years ago. Uh, Some 20 years ago, 22 years ago, when we started this church, there were assumptions that we made then that are being attacked today like never before. Like never before. Uh, The stones that we're going to talk about for the next three weeks come from the river. That's why they're river stones. They come out of the river. Well, guess what? They have to stay in the river. And the story talks about bringing them out of the river and setting them up as a remembrance. But as we talk about them, not just as stones of remembrance, but as living stones, they have to stay in the river. Because if you take them out of the river, they lose their life. The river represents the presence and the power of the living God, and therefore, we have to keep the things that we're going to talk about these next three weeks, we have to keep those things connected to the river, the source of life. Now, understand this. The foundation, the foundation for all of the stones that we're going to talk about for the next three weeks is this. There is one God. There is one God And he has been revealed to us through Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. There is only one way to know him, and that is through faith in his Son. He has not provided any other way to come into relationship with him, he has not provided any other way to know him except through relationship with his Son. If we lose or even get cloudy, on this primary truth, then every river stone becomes just another powerless rock. Now, this book right here, this book is incredibly important. I I can't overstate how important this book is. We cannot afford to have a casual relationship with this book. We can't afford to have a casual attitude towards this book and we can't afford to have a casual relationship with the God who gave it to us. This book is incredibly important in these days. We have to read it and we have to study it and we have to teach it and we have to preach it because if our stones become separated from the foundational truths Of this word, they'll just become dead pursuits, just dead pursuits, void of life. They will become religion without power. So today we're going to start, we're going to look at four of the stones that God has given us, things that we believe are important enough to say to the next generation, make sure that you give yourself to this. Uh, Stone number one is the stone of worship. A stone of worship. Now, worship is not a style and worship is not a personality. Uh, worship is a response. Worship is a response. And in scripture, worship is primarily physical. Uh, worship is not a noun, it's actually a verb. Uh, now, there was a season of time in, in my life uh, where it seemed like uh, worship got kind of dead, uh, I would say it got boring. And it seemed like worship was more like a funeral dirge than a wedding dance. Uh, Maybe maybe it was just me. Maybe I'm the only one that that noticed that. But there was a reaction to that that was, in some ways, almost as bad. uh, Because worship then became a concert a performance, almost like a, like a disco club. And, and I still haven't figured out what fog machines have to do with worship. But maybe again, that's just me because I'm old. But, but I believe that what Jesus is doing in these days is restoring his house to a place of true worship. God is a restorer. And Jesus is a restorer. And he loves to set things up that have fallen down. Sometimes he sets up people who have fallen down. Uh, Jesus, uh, there's a story about Jesus in Matthew 21 where he walks into the temple and and he runs out the money changers and he turns over their tables and he sets things right. Things had gone wrong in the temple and he sets things right. And when he does, when he sets things in order and actually cleanses the temple, immediately the lame and the blind come to him and and they are prayed for, for healing. And the children sing. Jesus declares that day that my father's house is a house of prayer. And spontaneous worship breaks out. Now, I believe that God is reteaching his people to worship. He's reteaching us and he's taking us into deeper places in worship. He's taking to a place, taking us to a place that is holy and reverent and at the same time full of joy and life and freedom. He's taking us to a place that engages his presence. and and looks more like a wedding than a funeral. Now, the thing that you and I have to, to keep in mind is that to get there, we have to reject passivity and fear. Sometimes we adopt the attitude that worship is something that might happen to us, when in reality, worship is something that we choose It is an action that we choose. We have to learn to worship on purpose, to be intentional, to make the choice to worship. That's why it's called a sacrifice of praise. It is a choice that we make. And we make that choice in response to what God has done for us, but also primarily we make that choice because he is worthy. He is worthy of being worshipped. Now, whether it's contemplative and quiet, loud and exuberant, or active, or still, worship is on purpose. And the purpose of our worship always has to be His glory. His glory, not our comfort. We can't fall into that ditch that says, I worship this way because that's the kind of person that I am. We have to choose instead to say, I worship this way because that's the kind of God he is. All right. So first stone, stone of worship. Second stone is the stone of intercession. Now we we all know that we should pray. I don't think I could find anybody in here who would say, ah, no need to pray. Prayer is not important. We all know that we need to pray and most of us would say that we need to pray more. Most of us would say, I I should pray more. We're all called to pray. We're all called to intercede. There, There is a place of prayer. There's a place of prayer that is absolutely necessary to have intimacy with God. This is what The disciples saw, when they looked at the life of Jesus, they saw this place of prayer that Jesus occupied, and it made them ask him, would you teach us to pray? Now, I'm convinced that it wasn't uh, the power that they saw in the miracles that made them ask him that. What they saw in his place of prayer was the intimacy that he had with the Father. And that created a longing in them to have an intimacy like that with God. And that's why I believe they asked him, teach us to pray. There's also a place in prayer that doesn't just change us. There's a place in prayer that changes cities and nations and history. I believe that God is positioning in these days point people, men and women, with prophetic giftings and who carry God's burden to lead us and to direct us as a body into the deeper places of intercession. And as we learn from these people and answer God's call to give ourselves to prayer, our lives our churches, our ministries, and even our cities will be revolutionized. We're all called to intercede. Every one of us is called to intercede. But there are specific people, and there are specific people in this house whose primary call is that of intercessor. Primary call. The thing they long to do more than anything, the thing that they feel they were put on this earth to do is intercede. If that's you, you need community. You need community and and you don't just need community with other intercessors. You need community because you can't afford to isolate yourself as an intercessor. Because if you do, you'll fall into that ditch of I'm all alone. It's just me. All the prophets have died. Prayer is the most powerful resource available to us. It's also one of the most underused resources available to us. The stone of intercession is of great importance as we go forward. The third stone we want to talk about today is the stone of strategic warfare. Now, if we are going to teach our children, or even if we're going to just teach our friends, if we just want to simply teach anybody who will listen the truth of John 10.10, I came that you might have life and that you would have it to the full, we would do well to also teach them the truth of John 10.9. John 10.9 says, The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Uh, Now, it's important. There's a reason why these two verses, these two statements are next to each other. John 10, 9, John 10, 10. they are both true. And we need to carry them together. We need to understand that the enemy has a strategic assignment that he has given his followers against us. If we fail to teach our children, if we fail to teach the next generation the truth of John 10, 9, along with the truth of John 10, 10, it would be like sending them off to school on the first day naked. Now, you know, you've all had the dream, right? You all have that dream where you go to school, it's the first day of school, you're meeting all your new friends, meeting your new teachers, and you in the dream you are naked. And you are horrified. And, and it just doesn't go well. I can promise you, if you send your child off to school naked on the first day of school, it's not going to go well for them. It's not going to be a great day, they're not going to make a lot of friends. Sending them out into the world without a knowledge of the truth and an understanding of strategic warfare is just as bad, if not worse. We also would need to teach our children. We need to teach them that the enemy's attack is not just personal. It's not just personal. But there's also a corporate attack. Because the enemy... Hates the church. The enemy hates the church. And we're raising. Listen to me. We are raising a generation who hates the church. Even some who call themselves followers and believers have fallen out of love with his bride. And we can't afford for that to happen. We can't. Our call is not just to huddle up behind closed doors and try to keep the darkness out. Our call is to invade. And that's why strategic warfare is so important. Our call is to invade the darkness. When Jesus said to the disciples, the harvest is white, the harvest is plentiful, He wasn't saying, we had a good day at church today. He was looking out into the world, and he was saying, the harvest is ripe out there. Out there. The harvest is ripe, and there wasn't anything wrong with the harvest. Do you know what the problem was? The harvesters. The harvesters. And Jesus said, the harvest is ripe, so pray to the Lord of the harvest, because we need more workers. We need more workers. And maybe the problem was all the harvesters were in the barn. Maybe all the harvesters were in the barn. They were just harvesting or trying to harvest in the barn. And God wanted to call them and send them into the world to invade the darkness and bring home an inheritance. Strategic warfare. And then the last stone that we'll talk about today is the stone of impartation, to impart uh, means to deposit or to place into. Romans 1 11 says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. Impartation is seen and modeled all through Scripture. If you read through the pages of Scripture, you'll see that Moses imparted to Joshua, and Elijah imparted to Elisha, and Paul imparted to Timothy, and Jesus imparted to the twelve. We, it seems, uh, have adopted a hear with my ears, understand with my mind. Uh, And we're only willing to accept the things that we can grasp and understand. I have to tell you that most of God, you won't understand. That's why trust and faith are absolutely essential. He is not like us. <laughs> he is different. He is far above and greater. But he wants to impart to you things that go beyond your understanding. And one of the primary ways that he wants to do this is through spiritual mothers and fathers he wants to do things in this generation so that they can then impart what they have received to the next generation and then they can impart to the next generation i love the story of elijah and elisha elijah is about to leave he turns and he looks at elisha and he says what do you want what do you want from me what can i give to you before i go And Elisha says, I just wish I could be half the man you were. No, he doesn't. Elisha is bold and he looks at his mentor, Elijah, and he says, I want twice. I want twice as much. I want a double portion of what you carry. If you read and study their lives, you'll find that in Scripture are recorded eight supernatural miracles through the hand of Elijah want to venture a guess as to how many Elisha? 16. Double portion. Give me twice as much. So you can look at the next generation and you can say, we're going to keep it for ourselves. Good luck. Figure it out. And you can see every generation get less and less and less. Or You can turn to the next generation and say, how can I serve you? What do you want from me? What can I give to you? And if it seems like they ask for too much, thank God that they have the spirit of Elisha willing to ask for a double portion. Will we impart a double portion of anointing and blessing into the heart of the next generation? That's the question. Or will we simply make an intellectual transfer of information? I can teach you what I know, or I can give you what I have. I promise you, you would prefer the latter. I wanna read to you in closing from 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Paul speaking to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, your faith was in your grandmother. She passed it to your mother. Your mother gave it to you from generation to generation. And then he reminds him the gift of God was imparted to you when I laid my hands on you and prayed for you. Fan the flame. Fan the flame. Fan the flame. We have an opportunity we have an opportunity to be a generation that looks at the next generation and says to them, fan the flame, guys. Fan the flame of what God is doing in you. Do not let the fire go out. I mentioned earlier about this youth camp. And I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor at, at, the, camp, at the church where this camp started. And we'd just gotten back from camp and kids had encountered the Lord and were on fire for God and and, and quite zealous. And I got a phone call from from a dad. You know what he asked me? He said, would you please help my son get back in the real world? He said, I know camp is great, but could you just tell him that it's time to get back in the real world? What are you going to do? You're going to throw water on their faith? You're going to throw water on their fire? Or are you going to fan the flame? You're going to call them to fan the flame so that they can go further and do more. You're going to hold them back? You're going to hold them back because you didn't get to do that when you were their age? Are you going to call it out? Are you going to speak prophetically over them so that they can go further and do more? Because that is their destiny. That is their calling. Do not let the fire of the next generation go out. Now let's pray. We recognize that we live in treacherous days where everything that we believe, everything that we stand for is under attack. And, and sometimes we feel like it's the first time. And it's not. It's been like this since the beginning of time. The enemy hates you he hates us and he hates what we stand for but Lord you are enough we put our faith in you we lean into you and we ask you lead us on take us further take us deeper breathe into us your everlasting life and give us the courage pass it on. Give us the stamina to pass it on. In Jesus' name, amen.